Hello, and welcome to the Pine Ridge House Sermon Podcast. This week, we wrap up our sermon series on Revelation with a special outdoor meeting of Pine Ridge and our two church plants, Genesis House and Chapel House. So you will hear from Dan Jansen, Andrew Dexter, and Bryce Clements, who share with us about Revelations 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for these, write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, fifteen hundred miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. 
and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, sorry, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the word of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in, in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is your word, and it is amazing as we read it, and we get taken away to what it's going to be like with you in all eternity. We're not there We're not there now, but as we read these chapters, it gives us incredible hope because this is not the end point for us on this earth. The end is for us to be with you in all eternity. So I pray, Lord, this morning you would use the words of your scripture. You'd use myself and, and Andrew and Bryce to communicate your word in such a way, Lord, that, that we, we live and we understand uh, this hope that we have in front of us and that it would change the way that we think. And I pray, Lord, if there's any discouraged a discouragement this morning, Lord, that they'd be comforted and encouraged by your word. And so, Lord, as we, your people, as we submit to your word now, we ask that you would do your work through your word 
In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you may be seated. So we come now to uh, the best part of Revelation. The best part of Revelation because it's talking about eternity with Jesus. And in these final two chapters, I don't know about you, but as Jody was reading, you get kind of taken away. You get taken away for a little bit and you imagine what it's going to be like to be with Jesus for all eternity. It's described here in verse 1 as the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So the old earth here is now passed away and we can look forward to the new earth. And in order to describe this new earth, John describes it in terms of what it's not going to be like. Look down there in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. In contrast to the old, our future existence with God will involve a new uh, emotional and relational reality. Something like we've never experienced here. And to describe what it won't be like on the earth now uh, is really a backwards way. It's a backwards way of saying what our current reality is right now on this planet. And as good as it can be, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of hardship. And we have to endure it. Relationships is often the most difficult that we can go through on this earth. I mean, as you think back in all relationships that you've had, what relationship hasn't disappointed you and what relationship hasn't hurt you? Emotional pain at the hands of someone else is a normal part of life. It's a normal part of life here on this planet. And many relationships, yes, they're rewarding, but they're also very hard. Some of us, as we go back many years, we think of the pain that we went through as a kid. I don't know what your painful memories are, but many of us have very painful memories as kids. Others have experienced a lot of pain in these last two and a half years with COVID as we've heard of relationships being destroyed and friendships being over. It's been hard. Some of you have been through this pain this last month or week, and maybe some of you here, even on the way to church, pain through some kind of relationship. All of that pain, Jesus said, it's going to be gone. That kind of relational pain, that kind of emotional pain will never be in glory. It will never be there. Or how about the pain of losing somebody close to you? It says here in the text that there's going to be no more death in heaven. There's no more death on the new earth. And some of you have been affected by death in this way and somebody close to you, you've lost. Others maybe not yet. For me, I, I lost my dad five years ago. That was really hard on me. And then a close friend of mine died just six months ago. That was also extremely difficult on me. But it says here, there'll be no more mourning. Mourning is not going to be a part of our existence with God and Jesus Christ in the new earth. It's not going to be there. What about the reality of physical pain that we experience here? And some of us have had to even face death. And God, he cannot remove this kind of suffering because that's what it's like to live in a fallen world. And while we still live here, we're going to have to go through this stuff. So then is our hope only in when we get to go to eternity? When we read it here, is that our only hope? Well, not really. 
Not entirely, because we have hope here. We can go to Jesus in our time of pain because the Bible describes him as the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort who comforts us in our time of need. And why can God comfort us in these times? Because Jesus, Jesus Christ, came to this earth and he suffered all the same hardship that we have. And so in the midst of our hardship, we can come to Jesus Christ. You want to talk about relational hardship? Jesus poured his life. He poured his life into his disciples for three years. The best possible companion you could ever have. Somebody who never, ever let them down. And yet in his time of need, all of them took off. Mark chapter 14 and verse 15 says, Every single disciple took off from Jesus and they all fled. Jesus understands what that's like. He knows what that's like. And so do we. Ever had friends leave you? Ever had a friend betray you? Some betray us to our face, others behind our back. Ever been ridiculed? Ever been left alone? Ever been made fun of? Jesus understands all this. He can empathize with us, and so we can go to him because he understands. Jesus also experienced the life, uh, the loss, rather, of a close person to him in John the Baptist. It was really hard on him. And he took away, the text tells us, he took away the disciples to a lonely place after John died. Or how about facing death? Facing our own physical pain and actually having to face death. The Bible describes Jesus when he faced death as being extremely difficult. Sometimes we miss this. In John chapter 12, Jesus says this, My soul has been troubled. And that word for trouble is actual mental confusion. Jesus was deeply affected by the fact that he knew he was about to die. And then it says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's exactly what Jesus prayed. He wanted out. He wanted out. He pleaded with God in sweats of blood. He wanted an alternative. And in the end, of course, he submitted to God and he suffered through it. And so because he suffered through all of that, he's able to come to our aid in our time of need. The God of all comfort through Jesus Christ can comfort us because he's been through it himself. But the comfort we receive now pales in comparison to what we're going to get in eternity. On the new earth with Jesus, this pain and hardship will all be gone. It'll all be gone. It says here that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more pain, no more crying, no more mourning, and no more death. And as John is describing it here through the inspiration of the Spirit, he's describing it primarily in relational terms. What's it going to be like in eternity? It's described primarily in relation terms. And John uses the strongest relational terms he can to communicate this. In verse 2, verse two he talks about a bride being ready for her husband. This is to be the strongest relationship you have on this planet. And John, therefore, to help us understand what it's going to be like in glory, he's using these kinds of terms. But as close as your, your relationship can be with your wife or with your husband, it will pale. It will pale in the unhindered relationship we get when we are with Jesus for all eternity. The next closest relationship we have on the planet is, of course, family. And so John uses this to help us understand what our relationship is going to look like in verse 7. It says, I will be his God and he will be my son. And of course, when we pray to God the Father, that's exactly what we do. We call him Father. 
the terminology that we use when we talk to God is we, we term him father because we're using relational terms. It says here that as a father, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. What's it like to have a dad wipe your tear from your eyes? Dads, remember? Remember when your kids were crying and you pick them up and you held them and they stopped crying? Isn't that crazy? And we remember that as kids too, we're crying, we skin our knee or some kind of emotional pain and we go to our dad and our dad picks us up and he holds us and we're comforted. I, uh, I became a grandpa twice over this last year and uh, one of my grandkids is here this morning, Noah. And uh, it's an amazing thing when she is uh, crying, she hurts herself and she's crying and her dad or her mom picks her up and she stops. Why? There's something about that. There's something about the comfort of a dad. There's something about the comfort of a mom. Where even though we're in the midst of our pain, it can actually go away. In this new earth with God, he will not be far off. The Bible describes it this way in verse uh, 3. He will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and he himself will dwell among them. This is not about God being off in the distance somewhere. This is about God being very close to us. There will be no barriers. There will be no barriers in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The absolute perfect companion available all the time. And not just available for us to go be with him. It's him desiring to come to be with us. Do you remember the thief on the cross and Jesus said to him, this day what? You will be with me in paradise. That's what paradise is about. In Luke chapter 15, I, I think it's the most incredible story of what it's going to be like in glory. There's a story of this wayward son who uh, is full of sin and he comes to meet his father. He's coming back to his father and he's repentant and he wants to meet him again. And he's wondering what his father's going to do. Luke chapter 15 and verse 20 says this, When the son's coming, the father saw from a far distance, and he ran to him. He ran to his son, and he embraced him. You want to talk about what a picture is going to be like in glory? It's not about God being off somewhere off in the distance. It's not about us wanting to be with him and wondering whether or not he's got time for us. It's about God saying, I want to be with you, and he's going to run to us to embrace us. It's a relational connection of God the Father being with us and wanting to be with us in unhindered, perfect relationship and glory. And so the Apostle Paul, he wrote this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, there's other things that are going to be happening in glory, but to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And when we talk about what eternity is going to look like, it's going to be unhindered relationship with Jesus Christ. Unhindered relationship with God our Father. Where he desires to be with us and us with him. Again in Luke chapter 15 it talks about this incredible celebration. Where we're all singing together. And it's not God the Father sitting up on the throne off in the distance. He's actually dancing there with us. It's a relational connection. Andrew's going to come now and he's going to accent this further by describing the nature of the heavenly city. As Dan said, 
John here in my section continues to give an elaborate and detailed description of the heavenly city, this new Jerusalem. And so I've divided this little section into four different headings. One is the contrast of the city, the origins of the city, the structure of the city, and the glory of the city. So let's look at the contrast of the city. In uh, verse 9, John begins by saying this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the, la of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. If you remember from chapter 17, this language used in verse 9 and 10 of the seven angels introducing a woman representative of a city occurred already. In chapter 17, verse 1, we see the exact same angel responsible for the seven bowls of wrath. Listen to this in 17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Here in 21.9, he says, one of the seven angels, the seven bulls, comes and says, let me show you the bride of the wife of the lamb. The same angel holding the seven, same seven bulls of judgment is introducing two different women. <laughs> two different women, both representations of cities. I believe that this contrast is a deliberate by John. Because remember what the, the prostitute um, or the woman was symbolized in chapter 17. It was the prostitute, this great harlot. And this was representative in that context in the first century of being Rome. Well, one of my commentaries said it well. Uh, by a guy by the name of De Silva said, everything in Rome was designed to make you stop and marvel. So when you'd walk through the streets, you'd see these magnificent temples made out of beautiful stones and beautiful you know, um, gems and whatnot. You would see these giant temples and these incredible statues of gods and Caesar and all these types of things and it was make you stop and marvel and go wow like Rome is worth worshiping it's impressive I want to belong to her that's why he's she's described as a seductive harlot in chapter 17 the problem was the believers in first century had actually fallen into her seductive nature and had compromised Hence the message of the seven churches, five of which had a compromise with Rome in some kind of way. And so John begins to describe the new Jerusalem, the city prepared by God, as a means of providing them with the necessity to persevere and to give them a bigger picture of hope and grandeur, to make them stop, make them stop and marvel at the city that God had in store for them. And so John was really saying this, let me make this easy for you, Christians, the city of Rome, in all her greatest glory, is nothing in comparison to what God has in store for you. So persevere. Same could be said for us. When you go, if you walk through the city of Calgary or Okotoks, and there's things that tempt you, tempt you to fall to the world, and John would say, hold on a second, there's lots of things in our communities that are attractive, but nothing is in comparison to the glory that God has in store for you. So don't compromise, stay faithful and true. The second section is really the origins of the city. And Dan just read this to you in verse 1 and 2. He said, I saw new heavens and new earth, for the first heavens and earth passed away, 
Then he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So, and then he's described as a bride coming from heaven. We see the same language here again in verse 9. He says, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he saw the New Jerusalem coming down. Now this word coming down in chapter, in verse uh, 2, you see that? And in verse 9, you see it. It's coming down. The origins of this city are from the heavens coming to earth. So this is really fascinating. I was studying uh, for this sermon this week, and I was reading from Daryl Johnson in his commentary, and he said that's a very stark contrast to how some of, cities, some of the city's origins in our world today. He described New York, and I didn't know this, but he said that in New York, when it was first founded, it was intentionally founded to be a secular city. Intentionally founded to be a secular city. And people moved to New York wanting to avoid any religious influence. So much so that there was not a church in New York City for 15 years. This is according to Daryl Johnson, professor at Regent College. So you see the contrast. We see Rome founded on pagan principles too, but not the city that God hasn't prepared for his people. This is a city prepared by God. It's his work. It's his doing. It's his future for us. It's his creation. And again, he, again, a means of providing hope to say this is a city untainted by the world, untainted by men's desires, by men's principles. This is a city established by the Lord. My favorite part of this, uh, this whole sermon is the structure of the city. <laughs> In verses 15 through 17, Actually, it's through the whole section he de defines different aspects of it. But really, you get this picture of, of this sort of mind-blowing awe. I mean, the city itself is described as a, as a clear jasper. Think of a diamond. Uh, it's actually a jasper in that context would be a diamond. So think of the most beautiful diamond that you've ever seen. He's saying this is an entire city that looks like this, or it's got that sort of glory. Uh, he talks about um, streets being made out of gold and and. Uh, gates being made out of pearls and so on throughout the whole chapter. So again, it, this is symbolic language. It's apocalyptic. And so how much of this is actually we're going to experience in terms of gold and pearls and so on, we'll find out when we get there. But the point is, is that God, John wants to create a sense of awe and to say to you, listen, what he has prepared for you is unimaginable and it'll be breathtaking. But the thing I find the most fascinating here is actually the measurements of the city. The measurements of the city. Look at this with me in verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as the width and he measured the city with the rod. 1500 miles its length, width and height are equal. And he measured the wall 72 yards according to human measurements which are also angelic measurements. Depending on the translation that you have before you, you may not have heard those numbers. I actually think that the NIV does the best job of describing it based on what John's intention was with the use of numbers in Revelation. If you have the NIV, you, it'll say 1,200 stadia instead of 1,500 miles and 144 cubits instead of uh, 72 yards. Now, why is 1,200 and 144 more important to us from everything that we've learned and preached from since the beginning of Revelation. Well, 12 is a symbolic number. 
12 is a symbolic number, it's the number of completion or fulfillment. We've already seen 144,000, right? And as representative of the people of God. We've seen um, these kind of numbers come up frequently through the use of Revelation. So John's really saying this, let me put your head, like your headspace, in a particular direction. What I'm trying to convey to you about the heavenly city here in terms of its measurements is, com is conveying this idea of completion, this idea of fulfillment. So what's he trying to point to? Well, notice that the height, the width, and the length are all the same measurements. That forms a perfect cube. What other structures in the Old Testament do we know that formed a perfect cube? There was only one. In the tabernacle, there was the place called the Holy of Holies. And then the temple was the Holy of Holies. Listen to 1 Kings 6.20. Solomon's temple was built this way. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, width and height, and overlaid with pure gold. Sound familiar to Revelation? Well, of course it is. The significance, remember, of the Holy of Holies was it was the only place on the entire planet where God's presence was known to be absolutely found and His glory experienced. And so what he's saying here is the New Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies. It is the place where God's presence is found but with one major difference, and Dan's already alluded to it. Remember what the Holy of Holies was like as a worshiper back then. Everything about the temple and tabernacle told you that God was off limits. He was so holy, you weren't even allowed in his presence. There was restricted access. You knew this because you could only come to the, the gate of the uh, tab tabernacle or temple and no further. A priest had to mediate on your behalf with a sacrifice. God was separated by another structure and there was a curtain in front of the Holy Holies so you couldn't even be in his presence at all. Only once a year by one particular individual was allowed into his presence. Once a year, one individual, that's it. And that individual, if he didn't take the precautions laid out in the Old Testament, would be killed because of their lack of respect for God's holiness. And so what is he saying here? By talking about the new city, the new Jerusalem, he's saying it's different now in glory. Now it's not limited to only one person per year, but all of God's people. All of God's people. Also, not limited to once per year, and, um, but for all eternity. Not restricted in days, but for all eternity. This is full, unmitigated access and fellowship with the Lord. Another picture of God's uh, greatness and another picture of comfort to believers and especially that time who were suffering under the Roman influence. Finally, we'll look at the glory of the city. And we pick this up first of all in verse 11. When it talks about this holy city coming out of the heaven, it says that it had the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of clear crystal jasper. We pick up the glory again in verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb were its temple, and the city had no need of the sun or the moon or to shine on it, for the glory of God had illuminated it, and its lamp was the light was the Lamb. 
wasn't only God bringing glory, the people were as well. Look at verse 21, 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Heaven, the new heavens and new earth, is going to be glorious. Four times in this chapter, the word glory is mentioned. Now, what is surprising about this? The glory exists without the presence of the temple. Did you pick that up in 21? There was no temple in it. No temple. Now, you need to put yourself in a first century Jew mindset. How can you have a new Jerusalem, a new city, this new heavens and earth without the temple? <laughs> that is the glory. Everyone comes to congregate to the temple. Everyone wants to be there because that's where you experience God. And John is saying, no, there is no need for a temple. You can have the heavens without a temple. It's not required. Because the Lord, the Father, and the Lamb are the temple. Again, it's not about the building. It's about the relationship. It's about being with them and experiencing the Trinity in the fullest. Just an incredible picture, again, of relationship over and above everything else. One of the aspects of the glory there will be the absence of sin. And we pick this up in verse 27. He says, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, kind of a repeat of the list that Dan wrote, or Dan read in verse 8. But the point is clear. It's the absence of everything evil, the things that can create tears and mourning and crying and so on and so forth and physical pain it will be all gone something in this creation we can't avoid we bump shoulders with evil every day but in the new heavens and the new earth that will be eradicated and as I was studying I couldn't help remember the testimony of what it was like to be Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 2 of Peter uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. This is, this is the declaration made about Peter as he lived in a world full of evil. It said that his soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. His soul was tormented every day by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. And John again says in verse 27, Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination or lies will ever come into it never come into it so why would John write all this in conclusion I would say this John is offering a vision to the first century believers and to us as an incentive to maintain a response of faithfulness and obedience to God in the midst of a world that is often trying and has tough circumstances and no wonder Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2 9 no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Bryce will now continue speaking about the same theme, but this time from the perspective of a restored Garden of Eden. God is good. And all the time. It's because of that good God we're here today. Amen? Amen.
Uh, for those of you who are in sales, when you go last year, you're known as the closer. So if we could keep the aisles clear for an altar call after, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, so despite, <clears throat> despite where Genesis and Revelation are situated in your Bibles, they're not chronological. Our Bible isn't chronological. But they do bookend the Bible really well. Because in both books, we have a beautiful picture of a garden-like paradise in both, in Revelation and in Genesis. And in this garden-like paradise, we see a place that God creates, a place where God and his creation get to be together unhindered, in perfect harmony. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. He speaks it into existence. Everything we see here, he speaks it and it looks good. He puts the, the earth in its place and the waters and the trees and the plants and the birds and the fish and the animals. And he says, this is good. But then he makes a garden, a garden of Eden. And he makes this garden. He puts work into this and he makes the trees beautiful, not just for food, but for looking at everything just looks beautiful. And he looks at his garden and his creation. And it's good. And then God takes a chance. And he says, I'm going to make something different, something in my likeness, in my image. And he creates man. And he creates man, and he puts man in the garden, and God says, this is very good. And it's there where Adam and Eve lived in perfect, unhindered communion with God. They walked through the grass with God as they tended to the garden, as they looked at the beautiful trees. They were with God, and that's all they knew was just life with God. But unfortunately, we know that very good didn't stay for very long. Because in Eden, Satan shows up. And he lives up to his name as the great deceiver. Because he comes in and he deceives Adam and Eve. He deceives Adam and Eve and sin enters into this world, this good world that God created. Sin enters in and you and I have felt the effects of that sin. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, every piece of humanity has been scratching and clawing and trying to figure out how do we get back into relationship with God? How do we get back to Eden? And unfortunately, that was something that we could never do. We could never fix that ourselves. Because what we didn't know until Jesus was that we had a spiritual problem that we as people were just trying to fix physically. And what we didn't know was that you and I are caught up in a spiritual war zone. And over the last nine months or so, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, John has been warning his church and us, that behind this human curtain that you and I see today, there is a, a spiritual battle going on. And regardless of what we may think, or what the world tells us, there's only two sides. We're either marked by God, sealed for the day of redemption, knowing his voice, or you're marked by the ways of this world. And for those of us who believe, if we believe in God and we're marked by God, 
then as we go through this life, we do have a spiritual target on our back that the deceiver is constantly trying to get at, trying to deceive you and deceive me. And that's why John's message for the entire book of Revelation is this. Keep going. Persevere. There is no contingency plan for how church does church in persecution and out of persecution. It's we do church. And John says, keep going. Keep fighting. Keep running. However you want to say it. Keep going. And that's our message today. Is to keep going. And we don't run individually with the people beside you, that's who we run with. That's who we are in the spiritual war zone together. And today here is a small picture of the reward that we will get if we keep running that race to the very end. A small picture of just seeing three churches, three small little churches come together to be together and to worship and to celebrate and to have food after and to just say yes and amen to all that God has done. This is a small picture of the book of Revelation of when all believers from every tribe, nation, and tongue will come together and say, come Lord Jesus, come. And that reward is worth fighting for, amen? Amen? Because that picture from Genesis 1 and 2, with the garden, with the tree of life, with the river, with beauty, with unhindered communication with God, is what John pulls from to set the stage for the last chapter of our book. He says that what you saw at the beginning that we have only experienced in the chapters of Genesis is what one day we will all partake in together when Jesus comes. For those who are faithful, for those of us who go through the muck of this life and fight to the very end, there is a beautiful reward worth waiting for. That Dan, Andrew, and myself have just tried to describe using human language, and John has tried using human language to say there is a reward worth fighting for. And that reward that John talks about in Genesis in uh, Revelation 22 is this garden-like paradise, where in the center of this garden-like paradise is a throne, the throne of God. There's no veil, there's no court system, so you can only come this close. It is unhindered access to the throne of God. And from this throne comes this river of life. This, it looks like crystal. It's the water of life, and it washes over the entire New Jerusalem that Andrew just talked about. It comes from the very throne of God. And as it washes over the streets and over everything, we see this tree of life that comes from either side, and it's just beautiful in the center. And now we haven't been talking about Revelation as being literal, so let's not start now. But here's what John is saying through this tree of life and this water of life where Jesus is there is life that's what John is getting across where the throne of God is there is life and life abundant and there is where God is going to provide for us in the end John also says that where there is this life of this water of life and this tree of life there is also provision there and he talks about two types of provision. One is a physical provision that he alludes to. And he says, where this tree is, where this tree is, in verse 3, he says, um, it's got 12 kinds of fruits that yield its fruit each month. Not there's little fruit, but it's provision. Don't worry. Don't bring stuff to heaven. It's there. You're going to be provided for. But then he also talks about this idea of the trees, the leaves are for healing. 
And I know a lot of people get hung up on this, but I believe we've already talked about these leaves of healing in one way or another. When Dan talked about how a father can pick up his kid and wipe away every tear, I believe that is the same image of leaves for healing. It's not that God is going to be there in heaven and we're there and we're always crying and he's trying to keep the tears off of us. He's saying it's done. There is no more tears. And so these leaves of healing are the second type of provision. There is one, there's fruit. There's going to be physical provision. But two, there's emotional provision. That God has provided an emotional healing for us. Because we have all felt the this, this sting of sin in this world. And unfortunately, all of us have given sting to other people. But there's a place and a reward for all of us where God says it's done. There will be healing. There will be security. There will be unhindered access to me. And there's a beautiful verse that kind of sums up everything that we're trying to get across here today, and that's in verse 17, the first part of 17, where the spirit and the bride say, come. spirit and the bride the last couple chapters here are together one's not in heaven and one's on earth together and with one voice they're crying out come on Jesus we're ready we miss you we long for you for a book that is full of scary judgment and persecution and martyrdom and dragons and the devil himself trying to wage war against us, the saints. At the very end of it all stands two figures, the spirit and the bride. After the dust settles of all the spiritual battle that John talks about, we, the church, are still standing. Because God will never leave us hanging, never leave us, never forsake us. And as we look around our world today as a church, it looks like we're losing. It looks like the church is getting beaten out of culture. It looks like the church is being left hanging. That's what it looks like from an earthly perspective. But it's not. God has never let his church fail. He's never left his church alone. He's never left you or I, amen? He's never done that because the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Amen? And we see that at the end of Revelation. The spirit and the bride together, when all has settled, are there together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the beautiful weather that we have had so we can come out and enjoy it and worship you as one voice. We may be from three different churches, but we are all of one church and one bride. And as that one bride, we say, Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that we would fight the good fight, that we would run the race, that we would take encouragement and we would lean on each other as a community of believers to keep going, to keep fighting, because there is a reward reward worth fighting for, and we all can't wait to get there. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information on our church or this recording, please contact us at www.pineridgehouse.com.